six that I just like, oh man, that movie is just great. Um, and I've talked about movies before, uh, but there's, there's one movie that I want to share a little bit with you today, um, and I'll show you uh, a bit of a spoiler of that movie. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's the ending, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to spoil the whole movie for you, essentially. But um, it's called The Iron Giant. Who, who knows the movie called The Iron Giant? There's only two of you. Only two people know The Iron Giant. See, those older people <laughs> might not know it. Erin, you know The Iron Giant. Have you seen the movie? Yeah. Okay, did you like it? Uh, it was all right. <laughs> but essentially it's a movie about this uh, alien mechanical giant called the Iron Giant. Essentially he comes to Earth um, and you find out that he's like got incredible power um, but it's sort of like his, his, uh, his nature is as a weapon and essentially the premise of the whole movie is to go, um, what if you gave a gun a morality? And so he is this weapon, but uh, uh, he gets this morality, and essentially he looks up to this uh, this superhero. And some of us would, or all of us might know the superhero, and that's Superman. He looks up to Superman, and he sort of goes, "Oh, I'd like to be like Superman, rather than just be a destructive weapon." And, and so, anyway. <clears throat> The Iron Giant shows this incredible uh, ending scene that I choke up a little bit about, um, and hopefully you'll see... Oh, is it going to go? No, I haven't even turned this on. Here we go. So if it's going to play... Can you hear that? Oh. That missile is targeted to the giant's current position! Where's the giant, Mansley? What? Oh. We can duck and cover. There's a fallout shelter right There's there. There's no way to survive this, you idiot! You mean, we're all going to, to die, Mansley, for our country. Screw our country! I want to live! Hold him, man. Make sure he stays here like a good soldier. When it comes down, everyone will die. There it is! Shouldn't we get to a shelter? It wouldn't matter.
Let's go home. It's not hard to see the sort of analogy uh, that I'm drawing on for Jesus. Um, and, and similar to, and another spoiler for the movie, similar to the story of Jesus, the Iron Giant doesn't in fact be, isn't in fact destroyed, uh, but comes back a little bit later on at the very end, end of the movie. Um, so obviously, yeah, there's this sort of analogy that the movie's sort of drawing on about this self-sacrifice that this, this uh, giant... Iron Giant trying to be like emulating uh, the superhero of Superman wants to be like Superman and it's that self-sacrificing attitude. Um, Now, I want to just take us quickly to sort of Revelation 7 and we're not going to go through Revelation 7 in depth but I just want to sort of share a little bit of an interesting observation from Revelation 7. So Revelation 7... I go to the next slide. So Revelation 7 talks about uh, this number of people called the 144,000. Who's, who, who's heard this? Who's studied this a little bit? Anyone? 144,000. Uh, what's the number of the 144,000 made up of? The 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of uh, if Israel and in each tribe. Um, and when we read this in, in the Seventh Adventist understanding, it's not a literal number of people, okay? We're not saying that there's 144,000 literal people that are um, sealed or saved or things like that. Uh, we, we view it as a symbolic number, okay? Um, and 12,000 from each tribe, 12 being a significant number because obviously Jesus... Uh, uh, took on 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel. God uses the number 12 to signify uh, a lot about his church and about his people. And I remember having this discussion one day with a, with a, a church and a Sabbath school. The conversation started going, are you sealed? Are you, are you saved? Because that's the whole premise of the chapter. Uh, these are the ones that are sealed. These are the ones that are saved. These are the ones that, that, that names are written in the book of life. And so the question was, are you sealed? Are you one of the 144,000? Are you one of the saved? And it's an interesting question to ask and some other religions, and I'm not going not to badmouth any other religion, but I'm not going to name them, but there are some religions that actually look at the 144,000 and they go, that's a literal number of people. There's 144,000 uh, that people that will be saved or, or they're in this group of, of, of elected, sealed group of people, and you can actually work your way to get into that group. You can, you, if you work hard enough, you can actually be one of the 144,000. There are people that believe that. Now, that's a super crazy concept for me because that means that if I work hard enough, if I do enough good things or, or if I strive hard enough, that means I can knock somebody else out of that 144,000. That's a scary thought, isn't it? 
If I work hard enough, if I preserve myself well enough, I can actually kick somebody else out and take their spot. And yet, yes, I'm, 100, I'm part of the 144,000. Too bad for the person that isn't anymore. It's a super scary concept, and it's not to mention the saved by works theology that that represents. But let me just take you to another, another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says this. <clears throat> now, all these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for... And essentially, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth and going, you know the stories about Israel? You know the stories that we get from the Old Testament? All of these stories are an example to warn us, to sort of instruct us, to guide us in the choices that we make, in the paths that we might lead. And so I believe that God has specifically designed this passage to point us back to the Old Testament, to point us back to the story of Israel, to point us back to the tribes that Revelation chapter 7 talks about, and point us back to, the, to Moses and an example of sealedness or what it means to be saved and what that looks like practically today. What does it mean to be sealed? What does it mean to be saved? What does that look like in my heart? What does that look like in how I treat other people? What does that look like in being a member of a community or a church community, but also being a member of the surrounding community as well? There are only a few individuals mentioned throughout the Bible that are confirmed to be saved. There's a few implied but there's only a few that are actually named. Can you reference them? Can you name some of them? Do you know any of them? Who in the Bible is actually confirmed to be saved? Who, sorry? Enoch, because he walked with God and God, he just disappeared one day. Moses, how do we know that he's saved? Yeah, yeah, Mount of Transfiguration and Jude. Elijah gets, uh, gets taken up in the chariot. The thief on the cross. Anyone else? Hebrews 11, but it never says they're saved. Like, you could say, you could potentially make an argument for Abraham, potentially make an argument for David. Roughly like on two hands, I can count them all, Right? There are other people sort of insinuated, so there's like a group at Jesus' resurrection that are, that are implied that they, they are translated and taken to heaven. There's probably other people that we could make arguments for. But essentially, there's only a, a handful of people, um, half a dozen people that are actually confirmed to be sealed or saved in the Bible. And I think the Bible makes a really good point of saying that. It's, not, it's, it's, to, it's, to, it's to essentially go, don't make judgments about people. Don't make judgments because, you know, there's this half a, half a dozen sort of people that are, are saved, but don't make that Moses is saved because he comes up at the Mount, Mount Transfiguration uh, with Elijah, meets Jesus on the Mount, uh, and he's with Jude as well. Uh, so it's in Jude as well where, where it says that uh, the, the arch, archangel Michael contended for his body. Did Moses know that he was saved? Did Moses know that he was saved? Let's have a look. Exodus chapter 32, if you've got your Bibles. 
Exodus chapter 32, and we're not going to read through it, but you can do that in your own time. But I'll just give you the gist of the story. The story is the story of the golden calf, a very popular story. If you haven't heard it before, I'm going to give you the gist of it. If you have heard it before, fantastic, I'll still give you the gist of it. (laughs) But essentially, it's the golden calf, and Moses and the children of Israel come to Mount Sinai, and they're meeting with God. Okay, well, in fact, Moses is meeting with God up the mountain, and the children of Israel are down around the base of the mountain. They've, in fact, said, Moses, you go and meet with God, tell us what he wants us to do, and we'll do it. Okay? So Moses goes up the mountain, he's meeting with God. Joshua is halfway up the mountain, because he's kind of gone halfway. Moses what? The Ten Commandments, or the tablets. And God... God is meeting with Moses and it says that they're meeting face to face and they're having this sort of chat and God's giving them the Ten Commandments, probably having a further discussion about what they mean and all these sorts of things. Anyway, during their meeting up in in, in Exodus chapter 32, God knows that the Israelites are doing something. God knows that the Israelites have created something called a golden calf and and they're they're worshipping it. And they're doing unscrupulous things around the golden calf. And he actually tells Moses that he's actually going to, and here's a quote for you, consume them. Consume them. And Moses pleads with God to withhold his wrath. How would other, essentially uses the argument, hey God, you took them out of the land of Egypt, you rescued them from slavery, and now what would it look like to other nations around them if, if you did all of that, and then you went, boom, consumed. Interestingly enough, Patriarchs and Prophets actually talks about how the other nations all around are watching intently as to what will happen to these people. Gods were a very common thing. What was going to happen to these people that the God of Israel had rescued them from Egypt and what kind of God would he appear to be? And Moses taps into that argument and says, hey God, if you do that, what are the other nations going to say? And God relents. Moses heads down the mountain and upon seeing what's happening, in a symbolic gesture, as he sees what's happening, what does he do? He's got the tablet, and what does he do? Shatters the, 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 tablets of, uh, the tablets that he has in his hand as a symbolic gesture of exactly what Israel has done to the law of God. Shattered it. And he goes through this process and Israel sort of like, like, a, uh, like a young child caught doing the wrong thing, sort of uh, 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 Israel goes through this process of, of where Moses grinds up the calf, uh, pours it in the, into the water and forces Israel to drink it as a, this is what you have done. Judgment takes place and roughly around 3,000 people are killed because of, that, because of their unrepentance. And what happens after that? Anyone know the rest of the story? Moses goes back up the mountain to intercede again on behalf of Israel to God. And we find out some very interesting things in the book. Oh, sorry. 
Moses is in fact written in something called the book. What does that mean? Well, in Psalms, it says, it says this, add iniquity to their iniquity, not be written in the righteous, uh, written with the righteous. Elsewhere in Daniel chapter 12, it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, and at, the, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. That book is the names of the people that are, are saved. The names of the people that are sealed. And Moses knows that his name is in that book. Moses knows that he's saved. No, what's even more incredible is that Moses, who's sealed and saved, written in this book, the book of the living, the book of life, is prepared to give up his sealedness, give up his salvation, give up the eternal glory, give up his eternal uh, life with God and with the angels and with the, living, with the saved, to give up for the sake of this rebellious, stiff-necked, backsliding people. He's prepared to give that up. And he says, hey, God, blot out my name if it gives them a chance. The Andrews uh, Bible commentary actually says this. It says, nevertheless, so deep was Moses' love for these people that he offered up his life for theirs and asked that his name be blotted out of the book of life. And what's the application for that then? Moses didn't have to offer up his salvation. He could have easily accepted God's proposal, sat back, watched Israel be destroyed, and he would have carried on to the promised land. In fact, if you're a fan of the, 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 the hypothetical or, or what-if theorizing, then he most likely wouldn't have struck the rock later on to get the water for the Israelites and not being refused entry into the promised land in which Moses yearned so much for. But his love for the people that God had put into his care, these rebellious, backsliding, temperamental people, caused him to offer up the most treasured possession he had, the assurance of salvation, his name written in the book of life, his sealedness, his salvation. And the question is, do we have an attitude of self-salvation rather than self-sacrifice? Is my salvation more important than yours? Am I so insecure about my salvation that I'll build walls, I'll build communities, I'll build religious traditions, weird cultures to remove myself from what we consider the world so that I might not lose my salvation and to hell with being the salt and the light of the world described in Matthew chapter 5? Don't get me wrong, I've read the verses that talk about, like Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I get it. But if you read the context of that verse, if you read the very next at your own salvation with fear and trembling is actually for the ministry to take your salvation seriously because, because if you take your salvation sort of flippantly or sort of like just, just not really uh, seriously or anything like that, then others won't be attracted to your salvation and they won't see the works that God is doing through you. 
Andrew's Bible commentary continues and it says, but God rejected Moses or his, Moses' offer because only his son's Jesus' death would be an acceptable substitution. And in this incredible, wonderful way, Moses is sort of this archetype of Christ in the Old Testament. Moses illustrates wonderfully, even though his sacrifice was insufficient, another's would be sufficient. And Jesus comes along many, many years later. And rather than just the national Israel, Jesus sacrifices himself for who? For everyone, for the whole world. And after the Last Supper, Jesus heads to the garden with his disciples to pray. His disciples fall asleep and Jesus receives the full cup of the indignation. Jesus takes this burden on himself. Ellen White actually says, she has a fascinating insight into his emotional mental state. Says the Saviour could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave as conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separations were going to be eternal. Even though the Holy Spirit had shared with Jesus what was going to happen, even though prophecy predicted his resurrection three days later, even he himself had said he was going to come forth from the grave. Jesus questions whether he will be raised on the Sunday. He questions whether he will come forth as conqueror. Essentially, Jesus feels like he will die for eternity. Does he give up? No. He goes through with it. Step by step, he moves towards the cross. They beat him, they whip him, they abuse him, they nail him to begin to realize that Jesus valued you, he valued me more than himself. More than eternity, he was prepared to die for eternity for you and for me. That while Moses offered, Jesus gave. Jesus went through with it because only his sacrifice was going to be enough. And so I ask you again, is your salvation, my salvation, so important to me that I will hold so dear to it at the expense of others? Will I keep it to myself? Because if I associate with people outside my little safe community, I might lose grasp of it. I might let it go. I might drop my salvation if I don't associate with the right people in the right places at the right times. Paul, in, 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 Tim, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, when discussing his ministry with the Gentiles, people that worship pagan gods, people that weren't like the Jews, people that were, were outside the safe community of the people that Paul was used to, people that, the Paul, that Paul was associated with, he says this in 2 Timothy, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I, have, whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until the day, that day. 
Essentially saying, essentially saying Paul isn't concerned about the worldly influences around him. He isn't interact, uh, uh, sorry, the influences that are around him as he interacts, he builds relationships, as he ministers to people who aren't of his faith, aren't of his group of people, aren't of his belief system, because he has the assurance in Jesus. He isn't concerned about that. That Jesus will save him. He knows that Jesus will save him. That despite interacting with people who believe other things, think different ways, have different worldviews, Jesus can still save him and you and I and them. In fact, while many of us might be praying for a speedy exit from this world, Jesus prays the opposite. In John chapter 17... In John chapter 17, Jesus actually prays the opposite of a speedy exit of this world. He says, I do not pray that you, the Father, should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is actually saying, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, don't just quickly grab them and take them away from this world, but just protect them, keep them from the evil one. And that's what Paul is talking about, going, I'm not concerned about my salvation because I know that God will keep me. And the reality is that God needs people like you, people like me, to interact, to build relationships with people in the world. Or in other words, be the salt of the earth, be the like Moses did. And the question is, will we live our Christian lives with an attitude of self-preservation or will we be like Moses with an attitude of selflessness? Are we prepared to love people and mingle with people and build relationships so that the people can experience the love of God through the gospel being, uh, through the gospel being lived through someone like you and me? Will we be like Jesus in our service to those that God has put into our care, our families, our church communities, the communities around us? Today we have communion and that's what essentially these symbols represent in front of each of us. Firstly, they represent the, selfish, the selflessness of Jesus. And we're going to go through the washing of the feet. It's, it, that represents the selflessness of Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. And then the bread represents the selflessness of Jesus to give his body for us. And the juice represented the selflessness of Jesus to shed his blood for each of us. And by seeing that example of what Jesus has done, are we going to follow that example? Too worried about our salvation to mingle with others? Too worried about our salvation to interact with the world around us? Too worried about our salvation to be the light and the salt to the world? Or are we going to be like Moses or like Jesus? And what these symbols represent, selfless love for others. Selfless love for everyone around us. Selfless love for the community around us, the people that God has specifically put into our care in the environments that we're in, whether it's a student, whether it's at work. There are people that God has put into your care to love selflessly.
My prayer is that we will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have an attitude like Moses, have an attitude like Paul, have an attitude like Jesus with selfless love for all we encounter. Not one of self-preservation. And here, right now, we have the opportunity to undertake the acts of washing somebody else's feet as a selfless act. To partake of the bread and the juice as not something that's all about us, but it's actually all about Jesus and his selfless love. 